today's episode is brought to you by Pure VPN. Whether you're streaming, browsing, or just looking for a little more online security, Pure VPN has you covered. Rated 4.8 stars by TruePilot and seen on Wired, Yahoo Tech, The Huffington Post, and Lifehacker, Pure VPN offers blazing fast VPN services at an affordable price. Pure VPN also has features like internet kill switch, split tunneling, and the capacity to allow 10 devices per account, as well as 24-7 customer support. Right now, they're even offering a 7-day full access trial for just 99 cents and an additional 40% off their monthly subscription service. Use the link in the show notes to secure this deal and your online activity today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pulling a Jobcast, the Heist Podcast. The show where in each episode, I take a deeper look at some of the world's most extreme heists. I'm your host, Alex Godwin-Austin, and I am very excited about today's episode. Not only because it's taken me a long time to research and write, but also because it combines two of my favorite things, grandiose robberies and conspiracy theories. This one has it all, from tunnels and explosives, to almost getting caught, and even a potential MI5 cover-up to save the royal family. I am talking about the 1971 Baker Street robbery. So what are we waiting for? Let's dive in. 1971, the year that Apollo 14 carried astronauts on the third successful lunar landing mission. Led Zeppelin performed Stairway to Heaven for the first time in Belfast before it was released on their fourth album later that year. And England experienced the largest bank robbery it had ever seen to that point. On September 11, 1971, a group of thieves executed what is still known as one of the largest heists in England's history. Breaking into the Baker Street branch of Lloyds Bank, they opened and emptied 268 safety deposit boxes, making off with millions in cash, jewels, and other valuables, taunting the police as they left. But let's rewind a bit. Though the actual theft occurred over the weekend of September 11, 1971, this heist started much earlier. It's London in the summer of 1970, and the social dynamic is changing drastically. Thanks to the growing music scene, people from all different backgrounds who used to remain in their cliques and bubbles are now venturing out to different parts of town to enjoy getting drinks and bumping shoulders in loud clubs. And while most people are having a good time in this ever-relaxing social environment, Anthony Gavin, 38 years old at this time, is getting an idea. A photographer in North London with somewhat of a murky past that included a criminal record, Anthony decided that it was time for a raise. It was time to rob a bank. Based on the location and reported clientele, Gavin had chosen the Lloyds Bank on Baker Street. You see, this particular branch of Lloyds was said to have been frequented by some of London's most elite players. Celebrities, government officials, political figures, the list went on. Similar to his muse, said to be Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes short story, The Red-Headed League, he planned to tunnel into the bank and relieve the safety deposit boxes of their contents. Now, some of you might be thinking, why safe deposit boxes? And I would tend to agree with you. If you've already done the work to get into the bank and you have all the tools, 
why not go for the cash instead of gambling on the unknown contents of several hundred miniature vaults? And for that, there's a few arguments. First, cash has a relatively low volume-to-value ratio, meaning that you have to take a lot of it to be rich. However, taking something like a diamond that would likely be kept in a safety deposit box, and you have something extremely valuable in the palm of your hand. Now think about a duffel bag full of similar items, and you may have 10x your haul versus if you'd filled that same bag with cash. Second, think about the purpose of a safe deposit box. These miniature safes, located inside of a bank vault, are for the protected storage of highly valuable items like jewels, business documents, family heirlooms, personal documents such as marriage or birth certificates, stocks and bond certificates, as well as other sensitive or valuable things that you don't trust to be held in your own home. So how safe is a safe deposit box? Pretty damn safe. They're designed to withstand a myriad of natural disasters like fires, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, etc. A safe deposit box requires identification and usually a two-key system or a fingerprint or hand scan if the bank doesn't use keys. If they do, one key is held by the renter and the other by the bank, and each box needs both to open. So let's say the renter loses their key. The bank doesn't just have spare keys for each box lying around. They will need to charge to have a new lock installed on that box. So with that information, and based on the clientele I mentioned earlier, it's not out of the realm of possibility to find a lot of goods in those boxes. Think about the people that would even rent a safe deposit box. It's not like it's a standard thing everybody has. No, something that secure is reserved for the paranoid, justly or not. Now imagine that a good majority of them are big players on both sides of the law. The more you think about it, the less of a gamble those boxes become. Third, and I'll be getting into this a little bit later, but perhaps the contents weren't entirely unknown to Gavin. Perhaps there was something specific being held in the bank that would only be found in a safety deposit box. Regardless of why safety deposit boxes were the target of this heist, the next step in the plan had to be carried out. Reconnaissance. It's unlikely that Gavin could have gotten his hands on proper building plans or blueprints for which to plan this caper, and you can't just wing it. So what do you do if you can't get the right schematics? Well, you make your own, of course. Enter Reg Tucker. As much as we would all love to be able to carry out a fantastic one-man or one-woman burglary with acrobatics and black turtlenecks while keeping all of the earnings, the truth is that all the moving parts require a team of people at your side. Gavin decided that his friend Reginald Reg Tucker would be perfect for the job. In December of 1970, Reginald Tucker, a used car salesman of 37 with no prior criminal record, walked into the Lloyds Bank located at 185 Baker Street in London and opened a bank account and deposited 500 pounds. After two months of being a customer of the bank, he made another trip to his local branch to rent a safe deposit box. I was unable to find any mention of what, if anything, was kept in that box, but he made approximately 13 visits to the bank over the following months under the guise of checking on it. Based on the bank's protocol, customers viewing their safe deposit boxes were left alone by the bank's staff after they had assisted in opening them. 
as soon as Reg was alone in the vault, he used a combination of his body and an umbrella to measure the vault and begin to form a building plan. With each visit, Tucker was able to better refine the dimensions of the room, the location and size of the furniture, and eventually was able to draw a small-scale map of the vault. While Reg was handling the mapping and recon, Anthony was working on Phase 3. If you're going to tunnel into the bank, you have to have a starting point. And considering how difficult digging a person-sized hole is, the closer, the better. Relief came when a shop just two doors down became available, a leather goods store called Le Sac at 189 Baker Street. Enter Benjamin Wolfe. At 64 years old, he was the eldest of the group, but in his role, his age was to his benefit. Gavin looped Wolfe in on the plan, and Wolfe, being a shop owner anyway, was not only able to rent the open unit, but was also familiar with the process, and his experience would help in not drawing attention to their operation. So now, not only do we have a plan, but we have some pieces in place and solid information on our target. We have a scaled map of the vault. We have a base of operations and a place to start the dig. So now we need the tools. For the most part, it seems like you could use standard shovels for the majority of the dig, but springing up inside of a bank is no easy task as we learned from our friends down in Brazil. Reference episode 2 for that one. Which brings us to Thomas Stevens, a 33-year-old who is also a used car salesman with no prior criminal record. Stevens is rumored to have provided the necessary equipment needed to break into the bank from the ground up. These items included a 100-ton carjack and a thermal lance, a tool used to cut metal. Now I'm not sure how or why the others came into the picture, but I'd like to think that the original team put their heads together and decided that they needed to cover all their bases. They brought in Mickey Skinny Gervais, reported to be a burglar alarm expert and a good friend of Anthony Gavin. Two individuals whose specialties are unknown and are only known by the code names Little Legs and the letters TH, as well as a completely unnamed party who is reported to be an explosives expert. You know, in case the thermal lance wouldn't get the job done. Lastly, every job needs a lookout, and ours was a guy named Bobby Mills. In August of 1971, after about six months of Reg Tucker surveying the vault and having gathered the right crew and the right tools, it was finally time to start the dig. But there was one last hurdle. The bank had seismic sensors in the ground that, if tripped, would automatically advise the police of a likely attempt on the vault. Thanks to a friend of the crew members who worked for the security company that watched the bank, the team was advised that the ground sensors used to monitor the vibrations for just such an occasion as this were disabled due to a few too many false alarms by nearby construction. Armed with this knowledge, they broke through the concrete floor in the basement of Lissac and began digging. They decided it would be safest to only dig on the weekends so as to not risk anybody overhearing what was going on below them. They had also covered the windows of the shop so that anyone that may have heard something would come to the conclusion that the new owner was remodeling for a grand opening. Due to the nature of the buildings and their respective basements in relation to one another, the crew first had to dig five feet straight down before they could start their 40-foot journey towards the bank. You see, the storefront they used was two doors over from the bank, and between them and the vault was a restaurant called The Chicken Inn now a Pizza Hut, whose basement was a bit lower than their starting point. Our thieves used this to their advantage, 
and utilized the restaurant's basement as the ceiling of their tunnel. Once they made it beneath the vault, it's reported that they dug out a seven by four by five foot space to be able to use the equipment needed to breach the vault floor. Gavin, who is said to have led most of the digging, recounted losing roughly 28 pounds during the excavation. With the tunnel complete, the team planned to breach the vault over the weekend of September 11th, which included a bank holiday, giving them some extra time once inside. The plan was to use the 100-ton car jack to break through the vault floor, but instead of pushing the concrete up, the pressure from the jack against the vault floor caused the earth beneath the jack to give way, slowly pushing the jack into the dirt. Luckily, they had contingencies. The thermal lance was brought in as plan B, and the crew was able to make some headway, but unfortunately, one of the byproducts of using that equipment is a large amount of smoke and fumes that filled the tunnel. They finally gave up on option two and decided that explosives would be the best bet. Drilling holes in the concrete and timing the blast strategically to mitigate the risk of being heard, they were able to pack enough explosives in to create a small hole that they then widened with hammers and chisels. They were in. Throughout this process, the crew was in communication with their lookout, Bobby Mills, who was stationed on a rooftop across the street. Both sides used walkie-talkies, keeping each other apprised of any activity on the outside and the progress of the heist. Now, while this may sound pretty standard, what you need to understand about this is that in 1971, ham radio technology was pretty new to the United Kingdom and was still strictly regulated as far as the general public was concerned. So it was technically illegal for them to even use these bands, known as citizen bands, to communicate. Not like they really care about breaking communications laws when they're waist deep in a bank robbery, but I digress. I tell you that because it's at this point in our story where things get a little more exciting. Unbeknownst to our crew, they weren't the only citizens breaking the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1967 on this night, which made it a crime to listen to unlicensed transmissions. Half a mile away on Wimpole Street, a man named Robert Rollins was preparing to call it a night. Rollins, being a ham radio enthusiast, had a set in his room that he would use to listen to broadcasts before bed. He states that he would often tune into the citizens' bands and listen to other people's conversations. And how can you blame him? It sounds a little creepy, but if you put yourself in that time, these transmissions are still illegal, so there's some excitement in hearing what those who are willing to take that risk are going to say. However, that was not his intention on the night of September 11th. Instead, he was planning to tune into Radio Luxembourg, which was actually also illegal. In 1971, BBC still had somewhat of a monopoly on the radio broadcasting in the UK. But Radio Luxembourg had one of the most powerful, privately owned transmitters in the world at that time, giving them the ability to reach into UK territory. This was known as a pirate radio station, or a station that broadcast without a license. And with the right equipment, you could tune in. It's reported that they had quite the audience in the UK and Ireland. While Rollins was letting his radio warm up, yes, that is a quote from his own mouth. He had to let the radio warm up before it would perform optimally, like a car. Anyways, so while it was warming up, he left it on the citizens band and boy did it pay off. What came crackling through the speakers in Roland's room was a conversation that he knew immediately was about something criminal. According to Roland's, the voices stated that, quote, 
We've got about 400,000 and we'll let you know when we're coming out. One of the voices was much clearer than the other, leading Rollins to the conclusion that he was listening in on a robbery in progress and that the conversation was between the lookout and whoever was inside. And though that guess was correct, he was a little off on the scale. According to Rollins, he assumed that someone was robbing the tobacco shop down the street, and when he heard them mention 400,000, he thought they were talking about cigarettes. He knew the owner of the tobacco shop, and feeling that it was his duty to stop the robbery, he called the police. The officer that picked up Roland's call was not having any of it, and I can't really blame him. On one hand, you need to take calls seriously because you never know when something could go bad and it will have been your fault for not taking action. But in his defense, it was past 11 p.m. on a Saturday night and someone calling in saying they're listening to a burglary on the radio doesn't seem entirely legit. Brushing it off, the officer tells Rollins to record the conversation if he keeps hearing it, and hangs up. Instead of taking it like the brush off it was, Rollins thought it was a great idea and proceeded to get his tape recorder and wait for more action. At around midnight, the voices came back and Rollins hit record. This time, it was an argument between Bobby the lookout and someone in the bank. The fumes from the thermal lance that they had tried to use had filled the tunnel making it hard to breathe, and they wanted to take a break, so they advised him to go to sleep so they could come back early in the morning and continue. But Bobby knew that if he took a nap, it was unlikely he would wake up on time. Rollins not only recorded the whole exchange, but while listening, he was able to determine that these individuals were not robbing the tobacco shop, but in fact robbing a bank. With his new hard evidence, instead of calling the local police again, he called Scotland Yard. Officers quickly came to Roland's residence and listened to the recordings, completely fascinated at their current predicament. There was a bank robbery happening somewhere in the city right at that moment, but they had no idea how to find out which bank it was. They remained in Roland's room, thinking and listening for more clues until early the following morning. It was reported that Roland's advised the officers that the signal had to be coming from within a mile of their current location and being a ham enthusiast, his knowledge of his own equipment and the frequencies they were listening to should have been taken a little more seriously. However, the officers instead mounted a search operation for a 10-mile radius from Roland's home, causing them to search about 750 banks. Tensions came to a peak when the lookout's voice came over the radio again, advising the team, who was presently in the vault, that there was police outside. Scotland Yard officers listening were at a loss. They had dozens of units out checking banks. How would they know which officers Bobby had seen, thereby telling them which bank it was? It had been hours since the whole fumes debacle, so it was likely that they had cleared out for the most part. Having received the message from their lookout, they stopped working. It being a bank holiday weekend, the officers needed the assistance of a bank employee in order to gain access to each building. The manager of the Lloyd's Baker Street branch opened the door for the officers and allowed them to inspect the premises. It is reported that they made their way to the vault, and seeing no signs of intrusion, and apparently not smelling the fumes from the thermal lance, they carried on to the next location on their list. The final transmission and recording came a short while later when a waiter from the Chicken Inn restaurant next door to Lissac came to the window of the storefront and started peeking inside. 
Apparently he could hear the crew and was annoyed at the noise because Bobby advised that he came back twice to see if he could figure out what the commotion was. Fortunately for our thieves, there was nothing to see inside the storefront and the waiter went back to work, but that must have been a sign to them that they need to wrap it up. The last thing heard by Rollins and Scotland Yard was a member of the crew saying, would you like to change to the other channel? Which they now think was a signal to finish and get out. Scores of officers continued searching into Sunday evening, but came up empty-handed. They would have to wait for the banks to open on Monday morning to find out which one had been targeted. The following day, the manager of the Baker Street branch strolled up as usual. He had checked in on the property yesterday with police, so there was no fear of anything being wrong when he started the Monday routine. But when he opened the vault, he was in complete shock at what he found. Hundreds of safety deposit boxes open and strewn all over the floor. And calling back to the inspiration for this job, a note for the police was left on the wall of the vault that read, let's see how Sherlock Holmes solves this one. The investigation that followed, which involved almost 120 officers, led to the arrest of Anthony Gavin, Benjamin Wolfe, Thomas Stevens, and Reginald Tucker in October of 1971, making their victory relatively short-lived. The crew had been on the police's radar due to the lease documents for Lesac being found with Wolfe's name on them, as well as affiliation with Anthony Gavin, and they were subsequently put under surveillance. Reginald Tucker was seen meeting with Abdullah Hashan Ganji and his nephew Akbar Muhammad Ali Ganji, and passing them a bag that ended up having 32,000 British pounds in it. The two men were arrested immediately, but ended up being found not guilty. Over the next two days, Gavin, Tucker, Stevens, and Wolfe were also arrested. Anthony Gavin, Reginald Tucker, and Thomas Stevens each received a 12-year sentence, while Wolfe received an eight-year sentence on account of his age. Due to the nature of the items in the boxes, and the fact that not all of their owners wanted the names given to the police, it's hard to place a firm value on the amount stolen that day, but it is estimated that it was close to 3 million pounds. To this day, only 231,000 of the stolen money has been recovered. There's something I want to circle back to. As fun and theatrical as the writing on the vault wall was, it's rumored that the jab at the police wasn't the only thing the thieves left behind. But before I get to that, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce somewhat of a shadow figure in this heist. As I mentioned earlier, even after 50 years, the who of it is still somewhat clouded. But based on various articles that came out just a few years ago, it appears that Anthony Gavin may not have been the only mastermind behind this job. In 2015, a safe deposit facility in Hatton Garden was burglarized in an extremely similar fashion to the Baker Street job. The reported mastermind behind Hatton Garden was a man named Brian Reeder. Convicted in 2016 for that robbery, it's said that Reeder admitted to being involved in the Baker Street break-in. I bring that up because while admitting his involvement in the Baker Street job, Reeder also told reporters about something much more sinister that happened while they were inside the vault. According to Reeder, while the crew was opening boxes and searching for valuables, they came across photos of a Tory MP, which stands for Member of Parliament, essentially a member of government on the Conservative Party, abusing children. Absolutely disgusted, Reader says that they left them on the floor of the vault for the police to find. But when the reports of the robbery came out, 
nothing was ever said about them. Interestingly enough, when the news did break, it's rumored that the reports only lasted a day or so. In the days following, there is a gap in coverage on the story. It's said that the government put a D notice, which is not so much a demand as it is a request for the media to black out the story for reasons of, quote, national security. Now, I didn't find any hard evidence of a D notice being put in place, but it is referenced in several places that I used for research on this episode. What adds a little more fuel to the conspiracy fire are reports that the police threatened to prosecute Rollins under the Wireless Telegraphy Act, the guy responsible for telling them about the robbery in the first place, bringing speculation that the threats were part of an attempt to keep everyone quiet. However, not only was Rollins not charged, but when the investigation was concluded, Lloyds gave him a 2,500 pound reward for his actions. These rumors and reports have led conspiracy theorists down a few different paths, and these theories existed long before Reader was caught and gave his first-hand account. The first is that there were indeed pictures of a high-ranking government official involved in some kind of pedophilia, the evidence of which was found in one or more of the boxes, and then the government stepped in using a D-notice to buy time to cover it up. Another theory is that, quote, compromising pictures of Princess Margaret, Countess of Snowden, and sister of Queen Elizabeth II with actor John Binden were discovered, which also ends with the government stepping in and covering it up. Lastly, and this alludes back to earlier when I referenced why someone might target safe deposit boxes in the first place, it's theorized that the entire robbery was an MI5 coordinated event with the goal of breaking in to steal the alleged photos of Princess Margaret that were being held as blackmail against her. Now that might sound a little out there, but there are several reports that the princess kept company with some interesting people, and she did indeed like to party, so the idea of promiscuous pictures of her floating around isn't that hard to believe. But a full-scale operation to break into a bank and make it look like a robbery, also you could save a little face? I don't quite buy it. What I do buy is Brian Reeder's intel. In recent years, there seems to have been quite the surge in pedophile activity being uncovered in the upper echelons of society. And by all accounts, it's been happening for a long time. But I don't just accept it at face value, and not just because of the recent stories about Jeffrey Epstein. In my research of this heist, I came across about 1,400 pages of documents from the original investigation that are sealed and being held in the National Archives. Any documents that are in the National Archives are subject to review when someone makes a Freedom of Information request. And yes, you can make an FOI request on things outside of America because some countries have similar laws. It took a few weeks to get a response, but when I did, the consensus was that the documents needed to remain sealed. Here is the reason they gave, a direct quote from an email in my inbox right now. We are unable to open this record because all of the information is exempt under section 40 parentheses 2 by virtue of section 40 parentheses 3A, personal data exemption of the Freedom of Information Act 2000. This means that we cannot make the record open to you or the public in general. The FOI gives you the right to know whether we hold the information you want and to have it communicated to you, subject to any exemptions which may apply. Section 40 exempts personal information about a third party. 
someone other than the requester, if revealing it would breach the terms of data protection legislation. Data protection legislation prevents personal information from release if it would be unfair or at odds with the reason why it was collected, or where the subject had officially served notice that releasing it would cause them damage or distress. Personal information must be processed lawfully, fairly, and in a transparent manner as set out by Article 5 of the General Data Protection Regulation. In this case, the exemption applies because the record contains the personal and the sensitive personal information of a number of identified individuals assumed to still be living. These individuals have a reasonable expectation of privacy, which would not include the release of this information to the public domain by the National Archives during their lifetime. To do so would be likely to cause damage and or distress and would be a breach of the first data protection principle, which is concerned with the fair, lawful, and transparent processing of information of this kind. Now I know that was an earful, but it basically gives the impression that something very sensitive about the case is being hidden because whoever it's about is potentially still alive. Out of curiosity, I looked up all the members of parliament on the conservative side that were active in 1971, and there are still a few members alive today. If this all sounds familiar to you, that's because you may have seen this one before. This heist was the inspiration for the 2008 film The Bank Job, starring Jason Statham. I have no doubts that the writers took some liberties when creating the film, but truth be told, the storyline of the movie makes sense of a lot of the facts that without any context seem like coincidence. Unfortunately, it will be a long time until the public can piece together the whole story of what really happened that day and the reasons behind it. You might be asking yourself, well, it happened in 1971. How can we not know by now? That's because the pages of documents I mentioned related to the heist that were sealed by the National Archives are in two groups. Approximately 600 pages were sealed for 90 years, and the remaining 800 pages were sealed for 100 years. The soonest we will get a look at those will be in January 2062, the rest being released in January 2071. You may not believe in conspiracy theories, but you should be asking yourself, why would the government need to seal evidence of a simple bank robbery until those who were affected are dead? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and subscribe. If you have any comments about this episode or recommendations for future ones, please feel free to reach out to me at pullinajobcast at gmail.com. You can also visit the website, pullinajobcast.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Alex Godwin-Austin. Information for this episode comes from Wikipedia, Lloyd's Banking Group, The Independent, The Daily Mail, Crime Magazine, The Daily Record, The New York Times, Rob's London, The Wimpole Muse, Ice Pop, The Unredacted, and YouTube.